0: Welcome to the Pastor Nick Santo podcast, a podcast designed to help you live closer to Jesus. We hope that God uses it to encourage and empower you in his plan for your life. Now let's get into today's content. If you have your Bibles, you can open them up to 1 Samuel chapter 20. If you're here tonight and you you need a Bible to follow along with us, just grab the attention of one of the ushers as they're making their way Um, It is December 30th, and uh, some of you guys were probably thinking that maybe we would have a New Year's message or something like that. Uh, One year ago, I preached a message on a Sunday morning here um, that was called 2020 Vision for 2020, and I don't think any of us saw it coming, you know, and so I I figured I'll leave that alone. If If I did preach a New Year's message tonight, the title would have been Hindsight is 2020, (laughs) <laughs> you know, but but the truth the truth of the matter is um the, the verse that I shared a year ago was it was John chapter twenty, verse twenty. And and the verse says this it says that then were the disciples glad when they saw the Lord. And that really was the message. The message is to fix your eyes on Jesus and all things will happen smoothly. Not Necessarily easy, but the way that they're supposed to happen. And, and if you lived through 2020 with your eyes on Jesus, then you had a good year. Uh, whether or not you were, all of us were affected, all of us were, were kind of tossed by the things that happened. Um, but if your eyes were on the internet, if your eyes were on the news, if your eyes were on uh, the political showcase, <laughs> any of those things, it might not have been so great for you. But, uh, but if your eyes are on Jesus, your, your year's going to be good. Now, uh, Pastor Mike preached this past Sunday, and I don't know if you caught it, but he preached from Second Chronicles chapter 20, and in verse 20 and 21, so 20 into 21, I just want to read it to you again uh, in case you missed it, because I, I think that that is, that is the verse that we need going forward. It says this. It says that they arose early in the morning, and they went forth to the wilderness of Tekoa, And as they went forth, Jehoshaphat stood and said, Hear me, O Judah, and you inhabitants of Jerusalem. Believe in the Lord your God, so shall you be established. Believe his prophets, so shall you prosper. And then verse 21, it says, And when he had consulted with the people, he appointed singers unto the Lord, And that they should praise the beauty of holiness as they went out before the army and to say, praise the Lord for his mercy endures forever. And if you missed that message, I I suggest you pick it up. But basically, they were going into a battle and they didn't have to fight. They led forth with praise. They believed in the Lord and God conquered. And I believe that's the word uh, going forward for us as we go in. Now tonight, we're in 1 Samuel chapter 20. And at the end of the message, we'll be at the end of 20 and going into 21. I, I know these things are they are just numbers, but I, I this stuff amazes me, you know, sometimes how it all goes together. And I think God does have a word for us tonight. So let's just pray. I want to pray over you uh, as a congregation. Pray over us as we're uh, standing on the top, looking into a year to come, not knowing what it's going to be. So let's just ask God to go before us and, uh, and to speak to us tonight. And so, Father, we just come to you and we thank you, Lord, that we have such a confidence before you and such a strength that you give. And it's not in our own strength or anything that we bring, but it's only in you, Lord. And so uh, right now, tonight, Lord, I just pray over your people at Calvary Chapel, the Hudson Valley. I pray, Lord, that you would go before us this year. I ask, Lord, that you uh, would give us a a strong leading, that you would open our eyes and give us clear vision, Lord, for the things that are coming in our lives, for our families, uh, for our, our businesses, for our work, Lord. We pray that you would just please help us. I pray for your protection, that you would be a shield to your people this year. I ask you, Lord, that you would give your people health, that you would give them strength, that you would give them provision and protection. Above all things, Lord, I pray that you give them a sound mind. I pray that none would be fearful, that none would be anxious, that none would be uh, overcome or overwhelmed, Lord, by the things that are happening or that will happen. And we pray, Lord, that you would carry your church through, that we would have plenty of light, plenty of Holy Spirit power, plenty of strength in your word. We pray, Lord, that our church and our churches would be strong, that our pulpits would be full of fire, and that there would be an abundance of rain, heavenly rain, of your spirit upon us, Lord. I pray that it would be a year of growth. I pray it would be a year uh, that we would see you more clearly, that we would know you more closely, that we would grow in love and in the grace and the knowledge of you and of your son, and that you would keep us together, Lord, that we would be strong. I pray that you give us discernment over the... Uh, voices and the things that come. I pray that you'd give us wisdom, Lord, that we would know what to do as the various things happen and that you'd help us to not be shaken by whatever comes. And so, Lord, we ask that your will would be done on earth as it is in heaven, that you would keep your promise, Lord, that you would never leave us or forsake us and that you're with us even to the end of the age. And I pray that tonight, Lord, you'd speak to us through your word. Lord, we're here because we need to hear from you, and we long to, we want to, and we believe that you want to speak to us. So, Father, use the text of this chapter and the things that happened in the life of this man, David, and speak to us tonight. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, it's been a few weeks since we have been uh, together because of the snow day and then because of the Christmas holiday, but here we are back again. And just to remind you, we are in a series of studies in 1 Samuel that I have called Transitions. And uh, the reason for that title is because we find the nation of Israel is in a season of transition in this time in their history. They are transitioning in their government. They are changing over from a government that is run by judges to what will be a government that is run by kings. And that makes for instability in the lives of people it's also a time of transition for the characters that are involved in the various studies for Eli and his household for Samuel the young man who now has become sort of a retired prophet and for of course David and for the people of Israel everyone is in a time of transition in this thing and we read it as history and so we kind of see how God was in control and over it But they were living through it, and for them it was very unstable, it was very uh, maybe insecure, they didn't know what was going on, but God was there, and we have the record of it to help us to see God in the times of our transitions. Because the reality is that all of us, all the time, are in some state of transition whether it be a stage of life or whether it just be our life. This whole life is a transition. We're being prepared for the eternity that is yet to come. And so uh, this book, 1 Samuel, testifies to us of the presence and faithfulness of God in the midst of transition, and it also gives to us wisdom and understanding as to how to live when we find ourselves in the midst of it. Uh, We also see transition happening in the life of David as we kind of zoom in now into this portion of the book where we're seeing David being transitioned from a kid to a king. And we see God doing this amazing thing, preparing him for something that he has no idea what's coming. He has no idea what's happening in the present and he has no idea why it's happening, but God does. Now, as we come to chapter 20, we come to one of the most trying episodes in David's entire life. Probably one of the most painful moments that David experienced on this side of his preparation. It happens here in chapter 20. And I have to say on a personal note, that this chapter has helped me probably more than many others in the Old Testament. It's been a comfort to me uh, seeing that David went through what he went through, and yet God was with him even though God seemed so very far away. Quick background just to bring you up to speed in case you're just joining us. You come in chapter 20 and you're like, I don't know what happened in chapters 1 through 19. Real briefly, this man Saul was selected by God to become Israel's first king, but then he was soon disqualified from that calling because of a series of bad choices. And so by the time we get to 19, Saul is no longer acknowledged by God as the king, and God has now selected David to be the one that will be raised up to take his place. Now, David doesn't know that yet, and God is using Saul to be the instrument of preparation to make sure that David doesn't short-circuit and fall out like Saul did. And so there's this amazing preparation happening in the life of David as he's transitioning into being a mature man and becoming the king. Now, David has held three job titles in the palace. He began as Saul's armor bearer and personal musician. He did nothing valiant to achieve that position. He was simply recognized by someone close to the cabinet and he was called in without a resume. And he had that job for a little while. He then was sent home for a season. And when Goliath died, which is a whole thing in and of itself, he was recognized by the king personally and then brought in for his second position where he really became the chief over the men of war it was a highly exalted position and he had the respect of the king of the cabinet and of the people because of what he had done in faithfully going out and fighting against Goliath and seeing him fall Well, Saul soon became jealous of David's rising fame. And so Saul had two assassination attempts to try to kill David. And David again found himself outside of the palace. Well, Saul... Uh, was entreated by jonathan his son david was given one more chance his third place was a lower position now in the palace and in our last study we saw saw saul try to assassinate him twice more once with the spear and once with uh, an assault at night in his house you know and so five times now at least five times that you can count Saul has tried to assassinate David for no other reason than that he's jealous of his influence, of his authority, of his power. David has done nothing to bring this upon himself, but you see the tension that exists between these men. Now, Saul has a son whose name is Jonathan, and Jonathan has an affinity for David, Saul I mean, Jonathan loves David, and that brings complication into the situation because the king hates him, but the king's son loves him. And so there's this whole triangular thing that's going on here. Now, Jonathan thinks everything's fine. He doesn't want to think evil of his father. He doesn't want to see harm come to David. And so Jonathan thinks all's good, but David knows it's not. Things are not looking good for him. And so from David's perspective, uh, things are totally different. Well, let's get into the text and let's see what happens in this portion of the drama. It says in verse 1, it says that David fled from Nioth in Ramah, and he came and said before Jonathan, what have I done? What is my iniquity and what is my sin before thy father that he seeks my life? It's one question broken into three different phrases. He says, what have I done? What is the act that has triggered Saul's rage and hatred for me that he wants me dead? Second, what is my iniquity? The word iniquity just simply means general uncleanness. The idea is, what is it about my person that he just doesn't like? And then the third is, what is my sin? That is, what act or action has he deemed as disqualifying to the point of death where he wants to seek my life that he wants me dead now Jonathan who doesn't see any of this he says verse 2 God forbid you shall not die behold my father will do nothing either great or small but that he will show it to me and why should my father hide this thing from me it is not so and David swear moreover And said, your father certainly knows that I have found grace in your eyes. And he says, let not Jonathan know this, lest he be grieved, but truly as the Lord lives and as your soul lives, there is but a step between me and death. If I make one false move, if I make one mistake, if I'm in the wrong place at the wrong time, I'm a dead man. And so Jonathan said to David, whatsoever your soul desires, I will even do it for you. Okay, so we get David's perspective in the opening verses of this chapter. And here's David's perspective concerning the situation that he finds himself in. Number one is that he thinks this has something to do with him. He asks the question, he says, what have I done? What's my iniquity? What is my sin that your father seeks my life? He thinks it has something to do with him. The second thing that David thinks is that he can do something to fix it. He thinks that if he fixes whatever that iniquity, whatever that sin, whatever that character is, if he he can make some adjustments, that somehow he can make this problem go away. And the third thing that David thinks is that there's someone that can help him. That's why he comes to Jonathan. That's why Jonathan says in verse 4, whatever you need, I'll do it. You're here. You want help. What can I do for you? So David thinks that there's someone that can help him. Now, I just want to say emphatically concerning David's perspective on this whole thing is that he's wrong. He's wrong on all three. It has nothing to do with him. There's nothing he can do to fix it. And there is no one that can help him in this situation. It's complicated and it ain't going to work. Well, watch what happens. We'll come back to that a little bit later. Verse four, it says, or verse five rather. So David said to Jonathan, here's what I want you to do for me. Behold, tomorrow is the new moon, and I should not fail to sit with the king at dinner. But let me go that I may hide myself in the field until the third day in the evening. And if your father at all miss me, then say, David earnestly asked leave of me that he might run to Bethlehem his city, for there's a yearly sacrifice there for all the family. If he say thus, Eh, it is well, or it's fine. David wanted a couple days off, no big deal. Then your servant will have peace. But if he be very wroth, watch his reaction. If he gets angry, if he shows rage, then be sure that evil is determined by him. Therefore, you shall deal kindly with your servant, for you have brought your servant into a covenant of the Lord with you, notwithstanding or nevertheless, if there be in me iniquity, Then kill me yourself, for why should you bring me to your father? And Jonathan said, far be it from you, for if I knew certainly that evil were determined by my father to come upon thee, then would I not tell it you? Then said David to Jonathan, who shall tell me or what if your father answers you roughly? And so here's the plot. David said, here's what I want to do tomorrow I'm expected in the palace for the new moon. I don't know if that's when they had their staff meeting or their strategy planning time, uh, whatever it was, but they would sit together and for a few consecutive days they would eat at this new moon celebration. David says, I won't be there. And when I'm not there and Saul says something, you watch his response and then we'll know. And so David then says, well, we have to make an arrangement for you to let me know if I'm in trouble. So Jonathan said, verse 11, unto David, come and let us go out unto the field. And so they went out, both of them, to the field. And Jonathan said unto David, O Lord God of Israel. So he's speaking to David under oath to God, before God. When I have sounded my father, or tested my father, about tomorrow any time or the third day, and behold, if there be good toward David... And I then send not unto thee, and show it thee, the Lord do so, and much more to Jonathan. But if it please my father to do you evil, then I will show it to you, and send you away that you may go in peace. And the Lord be with you as he has been with my father. Jonathan knows something about David that even David doesn't know about David, and that is that he knows what David will be one day. And you shall not only while yet I live show me the kindness of the Lord that I die not, but also you shall not cut off thy kindness from my house forever. No, not when the Lord has cut off the enemies of David, every one from the face of the earth. And so Jonathan is essentially prophesying to David that he will be the next king of Israel, and he's imploring him to deal kindly with Jonathan's descendants. Jonathan most likely knows that if there is a change, that his life will also be lost in the process, which will happen, spoiler alert. But he says, I want you to show kindness to my descendants when your throne is established. So I love Jonathan. Isn't it amazing how how, uh, a man who can recognize God doing something in someone else and not be jealous or territorial about it, but be able to just let God be God and accept their lot and just get behind what God is doing. Jonathan's such an amazing character in the scripture. And so Jonathan made a covenant with the house of David, saying, let the Lord even it at the hand of David's enemies. And Jonathan caused David to swear again, because he loved him, for he loved him as he loved his own soul. Then Jonathan said to David, tomorrow is the new moon and you will be missed because your seat will be empty. And when you have stayed three days, then you will go down quickly and come to the place where you did hide yourself when the business was in hand and you shall remain by the stone Ezel. So you're going to wait in the woods for three days. And when you see me coming, I want you to come out of your hiding place and you will go over to this stone called Ezel. Uh, Ironically, Ezel means departure. You're going to go to the rock of departure. It probably was uh, a barrier or a mark uh, that was a boundary between palace grounds and that which was outside of palace grounds. And so that's where David was to come and wait at this moment. And Jonathan says this, verse 20. He says, and I will shoot three arrows on the side thereof as though I shot at a target. And behold, I will send a lad or a child saying, go find the arrows. If I expressly say unto the lad, behold, the arrows are on this side of you. Take them and come thou, for there is peace to you and no hurt as the Lord lives. So I'm gonna shoot three arrows. If the arrows land inside the boundaries of the palace grounds on this side of the stone of Ezel then you just come right out of your hiding spot you gather the arrows yourself and come on back into the palace because all is well the idea is in the arrow the arrow is the indication the mark of direction that's what arrows do they point places and the idea is that if the arrows on this side then you can be sure that all of this is part of God's plan and you can just come back in and everything is in your control. It's on this side. It's on the familiar side. It's on the side you want things to be on, David. It'll be good for you if it's on this side. You just gather the arrows and you come back in. But he says, verse 22, if I say thus unto the young man, behold, the arrows are beyond thee. The idea is, beyond what you understand, beyond what you can control, beyond what you desire and what is familiar and what is desired by you. If it's beyond you, then go your way for the Lord has sent you away and as touching the matter which you and I have spoken of. Behold, the Lord be between thee and me forever. So David hid himself in the field And when the new moon was come, so now the drama unfolds. The plan has been set. Here we go. The king sat him down to eat meat. And the king sat upon his seat as at other times, even upon a seat by the wall. I think that's intentional. Like God just kind of pointing out, you know, for Saul, nothing changed. Nothing was affected. Here's the guy who is the villain of the story. And yet for him... He just goes along in life and there's no problems at all. Everything is predictable. Everything is stable. I mean, he's kind of a jab in David's side. He's out there sleeping on the ground. And, you know, here this guy that's been rejected by God has everything just going so smoothly for him. There's no change. There's no effect. Nothing negative in his life. And it says that he sat on a seat by the wall. That tells you, you know, Saul was always suspicious, worried that someone was going to come behind him. Uh, no one, no one's going to sneak anything past Saul. And it says that Jonathan arose, no doubt out of respect. The king walks in, even Jonathan himself would stand up, you know, to acknowledge the king's presence. You know, even the son of the king would have to do this. No doubt that was the culture and the kind of man that Saul was. He demanded respect of people because when you don't get it from God, you got to take it from people. And it says that Abner sat by Saul's side. Abner was over the entire military. And it says that David's place was empty. Nevertheless, Saul spoke not anything that day, for he thought something has befallen him. He's not clean. Surely he's not clean. And it came to pass on the morrow, the second day of the month, that David's place was empty. And Saul said unto Jonathan his son, Wherefore cometh not the son of Jesse to me? Neither yesterday or today. I mean, you know, I just happened to notice that David, where's, David's not here. Any word from David? And Jonathan answered Saul. David earnestly asked leave of me to go to Bethlehem. And he said, let me go, I pray thee, for our family has a sacrifice in the city. And my brother, he commanded me to be there. And now if I have found favor in your eyes, let me get away, I pray thee, and see my brethren. Therefore, he cometh not to the king's table. He asked if he could go home. Now, verse 30. Here's the moment. Then Saul's anger was kindled against Jonathan, and he said unto him, plug your ears, because there's swearing in the Bible. Here it is. You ready? He says, you son of a perverse, rebellious woman. Now, that is a very sanctified way of saying something that we say in English. Okay? You son of a perverse, rebellious woman. Do not I know that you have chosen the son of Jesse to your own confusion or shame and unto the shame of your mother's nakedness. In other words, you're disrespecting your heritage and your destiny because guess who's going to inherit this crown and the throne when I pass along someday? It's going to be you and you're choosing Jesse over my descendant and over your own right to this throne. For as long as the son of Jesse lives upon the ground, you shall not be established nor your kingdom. Now, isn't it amazing that Saul knows that David is God's choice, and Saul is in absolute rebellion against the will of God. He's going to try to hold on to something that's been taken from him. He says, wherefore now, send and fetch him unto me, for he shall surely die. And Jonathan answered Saul, his father, and said unto him, Wherefore, why shall he be slain? What has he done? And Saul cast a javelin at him to smite him. He's going to kill his own son now. That's how psycho Saul's become. Whereby, Jonathan might have been a little slow, whereby Jonathan knew that it was determined of his father to kill David. He's like, wow, David was right. So Jonathan arose, this time not in respect, this time in rage, from the table in fierce anger and did eat no meat the second day of the month, for he was grieved for David because his father had done him shame. And it came to pass in the morning that Jonathan went out into the field at the time appointed with David and a little lad with him. And he said unto his lad, run, Find out now the arrows which I shoot. That's a trusting lad. He's like, you just start running and I'm going to shoot an arrow. (laughs) If I did that to my kid, my wife would kill me. (laughs) And as the lad ran, he shot an arrow beyond him. And when the lad was come to the place of the arrow, which Jonathan had shot, Jonathan cried after the lad and said, is not the arrow beyond you? And Jonathan cried after the lad, Make speed, haste, stay not. And Jonathan's lad gathered up the arrows and came to his master. And the lad knew not anything, only Jonathan and David knew the matter. And Jonathan gave his artillery unto his lad and said unto him, Go carry them into the city. And as soon as the lad was gone, David arose out of a place toward the south and fell. He arose And then he fell on his face toward the ground, and he bowed himself three times. And they kissed one another and wept one with another until David exceeded, or David wept the more so. The idea is that David wept out, that he wept in disappointment, in grievance, until the point where he couldn't cry anymore. I don't know if you've ever ever had that, uh, a moment like that in your life where you cried until you couldn't cry anymore and there was just no strength left in you even to cry. David wept out. And Jonathan said to David, go in peace for as much as we have sworn both of us in the name of the Lord, saying the Lord be between me and you and between my seed and your seed forever. And so he arose and departed from the stone of Ezal he exiled, he departed, and Jonathan uh, went into the city. Now, uh, the Bible tells us that, that the word of God is living and powerful and that it's sharper than any two-edged sword and it pierces to the dividing center our soul and spirit, joint and marrow so a discerner of thoughts and the intents of our heart. And the Bible tells us that God speaks to us through his word, that all scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for instruction and doctrine and encouragement in righteousness that we might be complete. And so, though none of us here probably can relate to David and what, it, what it's like to be prepared to be a king, every single one of us can relate to things that David is going through here. And that is why this chapter is recorded in the Bible for us and why God put it here for for our uh, examination and for our understanding. Because God has something to say to those of us that understand disappointment and frustration with the will of God and things that he's ordained and is allowing in our lives when we don't want those things to happen in our life. Okay, the chapter began with David asking Jonathan a question. Uh, essentially what is what is it that I've done how can I fix this and and why is this happening what can you do to turn this around and help me in this whole thing Jonathan and David's error at the very beginning of that whole thing was thinking that this whole thing that was going on between him and Saul had anything to do with him at all and it didn't it had nothing to do with him it had nothing to do with his actions the truth of the matter is that all of these things are happening to David Because David said yes to God's plan for his life. That's the reason why all these things are happening to David. We closed uh, last time, which was, what, three weeks ago now, by talking about the blessing of God. When God puts his call upon a life and lays his hand upon a person and pours his anointing oil in the way that only he can on someone that he calls and he calls that person blessed and he puts his blessing on their life and God has done that for David and David is blessed by God and David's going to be the gold standard of what it means to be a king serving under God. That's what David is going to be. His life is going to be blessed. But what's going on in David's life right now doesn't feel like blessing. It feels more like beating. <laughs> you know? And you think about it and you say, well, if, if this is what it means to be blessed by God, I'm not sure if I want to be blessed by God. What does it mean to be blessed by God? The word blessing literally means to prosper, to obtain a present or the word also is translated as pool, which means you, know, more, you, can, you can be immersed in it. It's more than what you can handle or comprehend or understand. That's what it means to be blessed. Let me read you a couple uh, of verses concerning the blessing of the Lord. Deuteronomy chapter 28, verse 8. It says this, It says that the Lord shall command the blessing upon you in your storehouses and in all that you set your hand unto, and he will bless you in the land which the Lord your God gives you. And so it speaks of prosperity and increase and how God is just going to cause what you do to thrive and prosper. Proverbs chapter 10 verse 22 says this, it says that the blessing of the Lord, it maketh rich. And the idea isn't Uh, financial as much as it is growth. That he causes you to grow. He just causes you to abound. He causes you to succeed. That's his blessing. And it says that he adds no sorrow with it. He doesn't temper his goodness with shame so that you'll stay humble. You know, when he blesses, he blesses. Leviticus chapter 25 verse 21 talks about God's blessing this way. It says, then I will command my blessing upon you in the sixth year, and it shall bring forth fruit for three years. And so the context is that there was a Sabbath year. They weren't to uh, sow their fields in the seventh year. So God says, if you'll, if you'll honor me in keeping a Sabbath year every seven, then I'm going to bless you so much in the sixth that you'll have three times the increase. You actually could take three years off if you wanted." Like I'm going to bless you. And the idea is that God is going to make it go even further. And so the blessing of God means that God has put his approval on your life and he's put his hand on your life for good. It means that you live in a sense of flourishing and wholeness and soundness and a full prospering from the inside out, not just on the surface. It means that you're content in your purpose, that you find your place and there's a sense of direction. It's all all these things. And the blessing of God is real. It's a a real thing. And it's very mysterious, and it's supernatural, and it's powerful. And it's something that's desired. As you read through the pages of Scripture, you see that those that understood it and understood what it was, they wanted it. You know, Abraham was given this blessing, and it was seen and and then obtained by his son Isaac, and then that was seen by his son Jacob and Esau, and they both wanted it. Only one wanted it for the right reasons and was willing to put off everything else to get it, you know, but there was this desire that they saw and knew what the blessing of God was, and to have it was worth everything because it was a real thing, okay? Now, let me tell you what the blessing of God is not. Okay, the blessing of God is not a life with no problems. It's not a life without doubt, never doubting anything or never having any trials or never having any pain. That's not what it means. It doesn't mean that your life is just perfect because it's blessed by God, but it does mean that it's blessed by God. Now, in the Old Testament, the blessing of God was placed upon certain individuals at certain times for certain purposes. It was Israel as a whole, those that sought after God, But in the New Testament, through Jesus, the door has been opened for all of those who come to God through Christ to receive the same blessing that we read about on the pages of the Old Testament scriptures. Galatians chapter 3, verse 14 says this. It says that the blessing of Abraham might come upon the Gentiles through Jesus Christ, that we might obtain the promise of the Spirit through faith. Meaning that the same blessing that God placed upon Abraham that was desired and was real and powerful and mysterious and all of that is given freely to all of those that come to God through the name of his son, Jesus. He doesn't restrict or restrain. He doesn't say, I'll give some to you, but none to you. He gives his blessing. His blessing is given, it's open, and it's without condition. It's enduring because of the cross. The blessing of God is available, and it's unconditional. But listen, it is unconditional, but it is also environmental. Meaning that there are environments wherein the blessing of God does not work or does not manifest. In the same way that fire is real, and fire works, and fire is absolute, Okay, But there are environments where fire does not work. If you try to light a fire on the bottom of your swimming pool, Josh, don't get scientific on me. I know there's probably a way to do it. Okay, But you get the idea, is that there are environments where you can't start a fire and there are environments where the blessing of God does not manifest. Let me tell you what some of them are. And I'm going somewhere with this, uh, just in case you were wondering if this is a tangent. It is not. Okay, the blessing of God does not manifest or cannot thrive in an environment where there is guilt, shame, and defilement. Those things are barriers to the blessing of God. You cannot both be flourishing in the goodness of God and feeling guilt and shame and defilement at the same time. That's why the Bible speaks against sin and against things that are forbidden by God because those things tarnish the environment and they kill and cancel out the blessing of God okay another one is human pride the blessing of God cannot thrive where there is human pride because where there's human pride human pride will turn the blessing of God into a hierarchy well I'm more blessed than you because I have done something that God has deemed worthy of putting his blessing upon my life and if you just become like me then you can also have the blessing of God too if you want to turn off the blessing of God in your life start having that attitude I promise you it will work very quickly Another one is human reason. That is that you try to attach some reason why God put his blessing on you or why God chose you. You will find very quickly that you are throwing water upon a very effective fire when you do that. Another one is human help. When you try to earn the blessing of God or try to do something to get God to try to bless you, you try to help him in some way. Well, God, I'm just going to make it easier for you to bless me it just cancels it right out because that's not what the blessing of God is. It's not rooted in man. It's rooted in the goodness of God. Another one is human independence, okay? When you try to live your life outside of fellowship with God, lack of depending on him, lack of communing with him, lack of connecting with him, it kills his blessing because blessing flows from God. That's why Jesus said, I am the vine, and you're the branches. And the branch can't bear fruit of itself. And except you abide in me, you cannot bear fruit. You cannot be blessed if you are trying to live independently of God. Another one is human indulgence. And this is a big one. And this is where the prosperity people get it wrong, by the way. Because, you know, we're talking about blessing meaning prosperity. God prospers. But human indulgence says that God, God's blessing on my life is for me. It's, for, it's all about me. He's doing this for me. No, no, no. God's blessing on your life is not about you. It's about him, and it's about how he wants to use you to glorify his name for other people that they might be blessed too. And so when it's about you, okay, that is a a canceling environment. The, The blessing of God can't thrive in that environment. All of those things are environments where the blessing of God cannot thrive, okay? Now, God has a desire to bless you and to bless his people and he's given a promise to do it. But where in our lives there are environments that don't allow his blessing to operate rightly or manifest rightly, listen to me, God, in his blessing, will create circumstances and things in your life that will alter the environment so that his blessing can then be manifested in your life in the way that he wants. And so sometimes painful circumstances and painful events happen to us because God is going to use those things to change the environment so that things can happen the way they're supposed to happen. Human pride needs to be humbled. Human independence needs to be broken. Do you get it? Things have to happen. Now, God sees a young David who is completely unfit and unready to inherit the thing that God wants to give to him. And so God, in his blessing, is going to create an environment where the things that kill the environment of God's blessing are broken so that God can do in David's life what he wants to do. Are you with me, okay? David is blessed, but he is right now in a phase where his environment is being prepared and God has Heavy equipment that he uses to break the things that need to be broken. You with me? Okay, what are they? Number one, God will use, in David, and God will use in you, God will use confusion. David is very confused. What have I done to deserve this? Anybody ever ask that question? Anybody ask, what have I done to deserve this? What if the answer is, you said yes to Jesus, that that's what you did because god is doing something in you now there's something in us it's in our human nature is that we want to know the reason for what's happening what action on my part caused the reaction of the situation that i'm in what did i do to my boss that he's treating me this way What did I do to my spouse that they are just my greatest nightmare right now this season of my life? What did I do that I'm being tortured in this way by my in-laws or by my kids? What did I do? You're asking completely the wrong questions. Now, there are times, okay, when... The things that are happening to you are the result of a seed that you deposited in the ground at some time in your past. Don't get me wrong. We do reap what we sow. And there are times that your actions are are the reaping of your actions or your whatever. You get the idea. Okay. But David says, what did I do to deserve this? And the answer is David did nothing. Okay. God is doing something in David. And usually when God is in the equation, the answer is always other. Do you know what other is? Other is A, is it because of my attitude? B, is it because of my past? C, is it because I was rude to my parents? D, other, circle it, it's D, D, okay? D, I sat with a man about a week and a half ago and he sat down and he told me a story and it's a painful story and he said, why is, and I said, stop, D, other, I don't know. I don't know what God is trying to teach you through this. I don't know what God is trying to say to you, but this I can guarantee you is that there is not a human being on the planet, including yourself, that will ever know the answer to that question because I guarantee you that whatever God's doing, it is so far outside of anything that has to do with what you're feeling or going through right now that if you understood it, your head would spin around. Because the Bible says in Isaiah chapter 55 that as high as the heavens are above the earth, so high are God's ways above our ways. They can't be known. In Romans 11 chapter 33, says that his ways are past finding out. So the circumstance that you're in right now that has nothing to do with a wife or kids probably has everything to do with the fact that one day you're going to have a wife and kids. But you can't see that because God's doing something that you don't understand. And so David's asking the question, why is this happening to me? And John was going, oh, no, can I make something up? You know, is there like a Reader's Digest article on this? Has it happened to someone at some point, somewhere, sometime? No, it's something totally different God is doing in him. Okay, David thinks it has something to do with him. It doesn't have anything to do with him at all. Okay, here is the principle, and it's probably some of what God was teaching David in this, is that if you learn that it's not about you when things are bad, then you might also learn that it's not about you when things are good. And that's an important lesson to learn, okay? And David is going to learn that lesson because by the time he's king and he comes to this place where he is wearing the crown and he has peace and a strong army and God has established him and he survived and he got through all of it and he's there, he's in the palace and he says, God, I'm going to do something for you. I'm going to build you a house and build in a temple. It's going to be the most glorious thing that anyone's ever seen in the world. And and the prophet Nathan comes in and and says, David, I know you have a, a strong desire to do this, but you can't do that. You're a man of blood. And God says, your son is going to build the temple. You can't build the temple. But God does have a PS. There's something else he wants you to know. That he says he's going to build you a house and that there will always be one of your descendants sitting upon the throne. Essentially, what God said to David that day is that your descendants will bear the name of the Christ child, Jesus, the Messiah that will come into the world will come through your lineage. God is going to bless you even more. And David sat down after hearing all that and understanding what it all meant, what it implied. And he asked this question to God, not to Nathan, to God. David said, who am I that you would do this for me? He got it. You get it? See, he realized this has nothing to do with me. If it had to do with me, I would deserve less than what I've ever... I would deserve more pain. I would deserve more suffering if this had anything to do with me. It has nothing to do with me. God, who am I that you would do this? And now you're speaking of my house for generations to come? Lord, you're too good. See, we have got to learn it's not about us. If we're going to walk and live in the blessing of God, God will bring confusion into our lives to teach us that very lesson. Job understood this. He said, "Shall we take the good from God only and not the evil? It's both." Understand it. Another piece of God's heavy artillery that he uses in our lives is this crazy thing called complication, complexity. You guys know complexity? <laughs> Ever have a situation come into your life that's too hard for you to figure out? That was David's. You know, bring Jonathan in who loves both Saul and David. Jonathan can't see the peril that David's in, David sees it clearly, that's complex. And there's no solution to this problem. You ever have a problem that's so complex that no one can understand it? Have you ever, or am I the only one that has ever been in a situation where you need counsel, but the situation is so complex and it involves so many different people that it is impossible to find a person to bounce what's going on off of that? First of all, is unbiased, and it's not going to tell you what they want you to do. Second of all, doesn't know too many people involved and will not be faithful to keep it confident. Or number three, cares about you enough to even give thought to what you're saying. And if you can't find somebody, then then you're stuck. And what do you do then? Well, you do exactly what God wants you to do then, which is exactly what was happening to David, and that is stop looking at people to try to solve the problems, okay? Get your eyes off of people, get your eyes on God, okay? Listen, Ephesians chapter two, verse 10, says that God, I'm gonna paraphrase this. It's gonna go up on the screen, I think, but I'm gonna paraphrase it, is this, is that God has a plan for you that's specific to you, all right, which means that God is gonna do something with your life that's different than what God has done in any other life, That plan is unique to you, which means no one else can understand where you're going or or counsel to where you're going because no one else has ever been there before. And if God is taking you where no one else has been, then why does it surprise you that you're in a place that no one understands? That's exactly what's going on with David right now. Now, David's going to get this lesson too. He's going to learn it. He's going to learn, stop trying to figure it out And just go with it. Because God knows what he's doing. Later on when David becomes the king. And things start to kind of fall out for him. And this guy Shimei starts throwing rocks at David. I mean this little peasant guy. Just thinks he gets all bold for a minute. And he starts throwing rocks at David. And cursing. Cursing the son of Jesse. Just cursing David. And some of the guys. Joab his you know general goes. Do you want me to go over there and just like flick him? I won't have to do it twice. Do you want me to just take him out? And David goes no. He goes, maybe God put it in his heart to curse. What do I know? Oh, David, you are very mature. (laughs) You get it. Listen, just let God be God. And God will bring complex situations in your life, and then he will iron them out so that he can teach you that you don't need to obsess about what God's doing. You can just trust him, and he'll figure it out. He'll move in your behalf and do it for you. Okay, another thing that God will do in your life in order to bring you to the place where the environment is right for his blessing to sustain is he'll leave you in suspense anybody in here ever been in a situation where you're in suspense where you don't know what's going to happen and there's nothing you can do but wait it's exactly what happens to david here isn't it that was probably a long 3 days what do you think i mean you're sitting there leaning on a rock for 3 days thinking about what's going to happen to your life do i keep the job do i lose the job Do I get to keep living in the palace and enjoying all the benefits of what that means and keep my job and my life and my wife and my house and all that? Or do I lose everything and have to go live in the desert as a nomad? What's going to happen? He's just sitting there in suspense. And listen to me. Patience in suspense is a powerfully cleansing force. And here's why. Because when you are stuck in suspense and you cannot get an answer until the answer comes... You will obsess about the situation that you're in until you are so tired you want to throw up. And that is exactly why God lets suspense happen in a life. Because when you do that enough times, you learn to not do that anymore. Is this going to happen? Is this going to happen? What if I do this? If I say this and he says that, then I say this, and I'm going to say this, and And all of a sudden you're like, no, what am I doing? Who am I? Stop. God knows what he's doing. Let him be God, and you stop trying to be. All right? We got to wrap this thing up, and we are here. We read the outcome. Okay, it didn't work out the way David wanted it to, but it worked out the way God wanted it to. The arrows flew over david's head and that meant david was going to go and we know david's reaction it says that he rose up and then he fell down it says that he bowed himself three times to the ground and then he cried until he couldn't cry anymore he wept himself out completely out the whole thing what's going on here listen to me church okay i obsessed i guess in a good way uh, for the past two weeks about this whole concept of the arrow. Like why, God, everything that, you, everything that you say is intentional. Everything that you put in the word is, is there for a reason. I know this isn't an accident. You know, there's three arrows. He bows three times. You know, what's the deal with the arrow? And so I looked at all the scriptures concerning the arrow. What does the arrow represent in the whole thing? And, and here, here's, what I, here's what I got, just looking at the Bible. In the context of this passage right here, the arrow implies direction. Okay, what does this mean? It means go over there, (laughs) right? That's, That's what the arrow implies. And for David, very literally, this arrow is the arrow of direction. It's God giving the answer to David and letting him know that, listen, where you're going is beyond you. Where you're going is not what you maybe wanted, but this is where I want you to go. I'm sending you here. That's where you're gonna go. It's the arrow of direction. But in the Bible, the arrow also represents opportunity, okay? Here here it is in the scripture. When you read in 2 Kings chapter 13 and you read about King Joash, it says that Elisha the prophet was sick and and King Joash kind of went to visit him before he died. And and so King Joash is there with Elisha the prophet and the prophet Elisha says to King Joash, he says, "Hey, hey, take a bow and take an arrow and go over to the window and draw the bow. And so King Joash kind of pulls the arrow back and Elisha comes behind him and Elisha puts one hand on the bow and the other hand on the arrow and then he says, shoot the arrow. It's the arrow of the Lord's deliverance. And and then, and then he lets the arrow fly and he says that this is the Lord's deliverance against Syria. You have an opportunity, King Joash. You have an opportunity to go and beat back the Syrians in a way that they will no longer be an oppressive force for Israel. Well, the story goes on, and Joash essentially flubs the opportunity. He gets one shot, and that's what you get with an arrow. You get one shot. I learned that this my first hunting season, and maybe my last. I got one shot, and I flubbed it. I lost my opportunity, okay? One shot. Let me read you another one. It's Psalm chapter 127, verse 3. Listen to it. It says, lo, children are a heritage from the Lord, and the fruit of the womb is his reward. As arrows in the hand of a mighty man, so are children of the youth. Happy is the man that has his quiver full of them. They shall not be ashamed, but they shall speak with the enemies in the gate. He says that your kids are your arrows, and you got one shot. You, can't, you don't get to raise your kids twice. You spend their childhood years drawing back the bow. And there is going to come a day that you are going to let go of that arrow, and that child is going to fly. And they got, you got one shot. You get one chance to raise your kids. It's an opportunity. And he, and he says that this is your opportunity. Kids are like an arrow in the bow, and you get an opportunity. Here's what I want you to understand. And listen to me tonight on the eve of New Year's Eve, as we stand looking forward into another year right now, you get one life. You get one. You get one opportunity to walk through this world. You can't redo it. You can't repeat it. You draw back. You pull one time. And I'm not just talking about parenting right now. I'm just talking about you, your life. You get one shot. And here's why it matters in the context of David. And here's why God used arrows, I think at least in part. Because God was saying to David, listen, David, I have a plan for your life. I have a call for your life. I have something I want to do with your life. And right now, for that to be realized, and for that to be profitable, and for that to be sustainable, and for that to be what it is intended by me to be, right now you need to go. You need to leave what's comfortable. You need to go down a road you don't want to go down. You need to experience things and embrace things and go through things that are not going to be pleasant. They're not going to be... At all, pleasant. You're going to hate it. But if you'll trust me in it, I will bring you to the place that you're supposed to be, making you the man that you're supposed to be. For us, the man or the woman that you're supposed to be. And you will not only make it to the place that I have planned for you, but you will thrive there and it will be sustainable. And David did not want to go through what God was calling him into at this time but it says that he bowed himself three times. He surrendered to what God said must be. And though it was painful, he did it. And though it was painful, it will be profitable because it will bring him to the place that he is supposed to be. The worship team can come. I'm finished. I'm going to skip my illustration about the hinds feet on high places because I don't have time. But I want you to understand this is that we are right now leaving chapter 20 of 1 Samuel and we are going into chapter 21. We are leaving 20 and we are going into 21. You get it? We're leaving 20 and we're going into 21. And this is what God put on my heart to tell you tonight amidst all the other things I told you. Is that right now, the arrow is beyond you. Okay? I don't know what's coming in the world that we're in. I don't know what's coming in our individual lives. I don't know even what's coming for me. But I know that the arrow is beyond us. That what we're heading into is not going to be what we're familiar with or what we've been familiar with. That's true no matter what. Okay, That's true. Take away pandemics. Take away politics. Take away chaotic world events. Take that away, and that's true. It is just true. That where every one of us is heading is somewhere where that we have never been before. And that God has something for us that's beyond. There's a transition that's happening in us because he's fitting us and preparing us for eternity. And we can either stay hidden, leaning on a rock, or we can arise and we can bow down. And we say, okay, God, I, I don't necessarily like the way things are looking or what that might mean, but I trust you enough that I can say thy will be done. I trust you enough that even if it's unpleasant, I want what you want more than what I want because I know that you know me better than I know me. And I know that you love me better than what I would do for myself. And so I trust you with my life right now. And though weeping may endure through the night, joy comes in the morning. God knows what he's doing. And he calls us to trust him. Amen? Father, we thank you tonight for your word. We, we pray that you would uh, help us, Lord, as we uh, receive of you, as we look to you, as we hear from you, as we belong to you. We ask you, Father, that you would equip us with a heart and a mind and an understanding and an integrity and a walk that's sustained, that's stable, that's whole and that's holy. And we pray, Lord, that you prepare us for what you have for us individually, what you have for our families, what you have for our church, our country, and what our place is in each of those areas. Would you help us, Lord? So give us surrender. Give us hope. Give us vision. Give us energy. Equip us, Lord, with everything we need that we might glorify your name. And I pray that you would bless your people here, that we would walk in the fullness of who you are, the fullness of your blessing in our lives. We thank you in advance and we declare our trust in you tonight. For it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Let's stand. Thanks for joining us for the Pastor Nick Santo podcast. To regularly receive these teachings, be sure to subscribe so you can get it automatically when it's released. If you find this material helpful, please share it and help us get the message of Jesus out to others. We also appreciate your feedback, so if you would, Leave us a review in iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. Or email us at pastor.nickpc at gmail.com. Until next time, may you continue to love, learn, and live the way of Jesus.